FIFA's World Cup of Soccer is a version of the World Series, the Super Bowl, and the Stanley Cup all rolled into one very international extravaganza. This year, the games have been hit deep in controversies that have nothing to do with athleticism. Declan Hill is an associate professor of investigations at the University of New Haven and the head of its Sports Integrity Center. He's the author of The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime, and the Insider's Guide to Match Fixing in Football. John Shanzer is FTD's Senior Vice President for Research and an expert in all things Middle Eastern. They'll be talking about the current World Cup, FIFA and Qatar, the tiny, fabulously wealthy and controversial country hosting it. I'm Cliff May, and I'm inviting you to join us too, here on Foreign Policy. Declan, thanks for being here. Take a minute and just flesh out your background. How did you become, I think, what you call an investigative academic focused on crime and sports? Um, Yeah, I had the good fortune to be doing a a PBS frontline documentary along with Canadian television uh, in Moscow in the late 90s with um, a guy who U.S. Congress and the FBI had identified as the head of the Russian mafia. And Mm. he had been linked with a number of prominent players in the National Hockey League. So there were clear, substantial, and solid connections between National Hockey League stars and members of the Russian mafia. And in the midst of this conversation with him, eventually an on-camera interview, I asked him, well, you know, I guess you like hockey. And he's like, yeah, I like hockey, but I love football, meaning (laughs) soccer. And at that moment, two things dropped in my mind, Cliff. One is that I really hoped I was going to survive this particular interview. And two, what was organized crime mobster doing like this at the center of world sports and international sports? So that's really been my career track since then. Uh, Shortly after that, um, actually during the Iraq war, I was a a war correspondent, um, or rather peace correspondent, as I like to call it. Uh, in Iraq, and I got an mm. email saying, you got a scholarship to get to Oxford to study organized crime. Um, so as part of my doctoral research, I was out in Asia, and I infiltrated a gang of match fixers who travel even now around the world fixing major sporting tournaments, be they tennis, cricket, basketball, handball, but particularly international soccer. So they were fixing games at the FIFA World Cup, uh, one or two games. And so I've written a book about it. It's now in 21 languages and being optional wow. in Hollywood. And by the way, two things. One, fixing, does that mean that they, they bribe one of the contestants to, to, to who is thought to be the, the likely to be the winner to lose? Is that how it works? Yeah. Um, and Cliff, I know our listeners can't see us, but I've got this broad smile over my face. Because, <laughs> man, in that world, they do everything. They bribe yeah. the ref. They bribe the players. They bribe the team owners. I mean, there have been cases in the Chinese Soccer League, which is notorious for corruption. I mean, it's really difficult to overstate how corrupt the Chinese Soccer League is, mm. Uh, mm. including most sports in China. But the Soccer League is so corrupt that they've got the two owners in their pocket, the two teams, the referee, the linesmen, the substitutes, even the journalists are on the take. It's really an, an endemic issue in, in international sports now because it's linked to this globalized sports gambling market. And by the way, where where are you from? You're, you're, you're at the University of New Haven, but you don't have a Connecticut accent particularly. No, uh, originally I was raised in the UK, but I'm Canadian now. Uh, but uh, this has been my passion, and it's been my mm-hmm. passion to protect sports because I believe very, very deeply in the power of sports in terms of teaching people ideals and morals and values. Um, so that's my passion. That's what I teach at the University of New Haven, how to investigate problems inside sport, be they sexual abuse, be they cheating, be they match fixing or doping. That's what I'm teaching my students. All right. Before we get into whether or not the current World Cup is achieving any of the goals you outline, let me ask John, you know, I don't want to assume that all our listeners uh, know a whole lot about Qatar. So why don't you give us a quick, not a walking tour, but a talking tour um, of Qatar and and the Gulf. Okay. Uh, The country of Qatar is um it's tiny it's um just uh east of saudi arabia on the persian gulf it's roughly the size of connecticut uh so it's tiny the actual population of qataris is uh estimated to be around 300,000 
Um, but there are almost 3 million people living there, which means that it is a country dominated by foreign workers coming from Pakistan, from India, from uh, across the uh, the Far East. Um, it is fabulously wealthy. This is a country that um, I think something like 15% of its um, uh, population are multimillionaires, uh, owing to the great uh, oil and energy wealth that uh, is derived from uh, the gas fields of the Persian Gulf. Um, which they share, by the way, with Iran. Um, what's fascinating about this country is most people couldn't point to it on a map. Um, but for those of us that watch the Middle East, it continues to pop up in the news in very negative ways, right? This is, uh, the place where the Taliban embassy has been based in the negotiation of America's surrender, um, to the Taliban. Uh, it is a headquarters for Hamas. It is a place where ISIS and al-Qaeda financiers roam. It is a place where Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the planner of the 9-11 attacks, was hiding. Uh, and then as the U.S. went in to capture him, someone from Qatar uh, alerted him and he was able to abscond. We continue to see Qatar pop up time and again as this illicit actor in the Middle East. Now, at the same time, it's fascinating to note that our largest forward air base, uh, where we're fighting terrorism, is based in Qatar. This is the Al-Udaid air base. It's the Combined Air Operations Center. It's a sprawling, uh, high-tech, um, uh, classified base, in fact, right? I mean, so our most sensitive uh, material, our most sensitive intelligence is all based there. And you have the Qataris playing both arsonist and firefighter. So it's a fascinating place, a wealthy place. And here, I think for the purposes of our of our conversation today, it's also probably just worth noting that they have spent a huge amount of their wealth buying influence in capitals around the world, Washington being just one of them. We look at Paris and Berlin and uh, London, where they're spending huge amounts of money to make sure that they are loved or in fact feared by the West. So here in the United States, when we were in Washington, right, we see that most of the white shoe law firms are on retainer. So they're conflicted out. A huge number of lobby firms and public relations firms are on retainer for the Qataris. Uh, they sponsor the congressional baseball game every year. They will keep the metro open when the capitals uh, are in the playoffs. Um, and they sponsor this, right? They look for all these means of soft power and they have achieved it. And probably their crowning achievement, which we'll talk about today, is their astounding victory in achieving the right to host the World Cup. Uh, yes, you got through almost all the points I hoped you would get through. But there's one I want, one I want to stress and just make sure it's clear. When we talk about the, the population of Qatar, as you say, about 300,000 Qatari citizens, but almost close to 3 million of these workers, these workers, as I understand it, John, they have no hope of getting citizenship ever, ever. None they whatsoever. There as guest workers, and and that's it. And that's all they can ever expect. They will never vote. They will, of course, I'm not sure. They will never be part of the. I mean, maybe there are rare exceptions, but that's right, basically. Yes. Correct. They have no hope whatsoever. They're there because they are able to make a good living, and um, comparatively. Comparatively, right? I mean, compared yeah, to their home compared countries. Compared to Bangladesh, maybe not compared to Washington, D.C. or Bethesda or whatever, yeah. Correct. Although we even see the Qataris bringing in professionals, consultants, doctors, engineers mm -hmm, mm -hmm, from mm -hmm. the United States, from Europe, in order to build the gleaming city of Doha, their capital, right, which has huge numbers of buildings um, that, that no one lives in um, and that no one works in, for that matter. But they want the best. It's part of a kind of a competition among Gulf states to see who can build the biggest, fanciest city that no one lives in. Um, and that is what they've been doing for years. It's part of this competition, primarily with the UAE. Uh, but you're right. As far as the workers are concerned, um, there's no hope of citizenship. There's no hope for rights at the end of the day. You have people who are sending remittances home to their relatively uh, impoverished families who need it. Right. And two more quick points. One is they have uh, certainly in the past given quite a bit of money also to Washington think tanks 
FDD is not among them. We take no foreign money, never have, never will. But other Washington think tanks have found Qatari money not hard to uh, to solicit. And by the way, they are they have in, they're in the what they call the education center. There's something called the uh, the Qatar Education City, I believe, um, in which they have partnerships, lucrative partnerships for a number of universities, including Georgetown, which is based here in Washington, Carnegie Mellon, which is in Pittsburgh, Northwestern, up near Boston, and some uh, British and French institutions as well. Um, Now, they would say, well, yeah, if we're trying to, you know, utilize these great education resources here in the Gulf as well, others would say they're trying to buy influence with these institutions. Final question before I come back to Declan is, we talk about the Gulf. We never say the Gulf of what? Um, and it's also odd that these tiny little countries with a population of 300,000, but you, how is it they never got swallowed up by bigger countries? How is it that they have managed to retain their independence despite generations and centuries of European and Middle Eastern colonialism and imperialism? Uh, It's a tough question to answer. It's a miracle of sorts. Uh, These were uh, essentially protected by uh, the British uh, for some time. In the 1970s, they became states. Um, And then, you know, the oil wealth has really propelled them. I would say, though, that um, most of these countries have invited the U.S. uh, to establish bases on their soil because they don't have armies. Because they don't have defense. So when you look at this chaos that I mentioned, the Aludade base in Qatar, the United States is there because we need to be there. But for the Qataris, that presence is crucial if they're looking at Iran across the Persian Gulf or Arabian Gulf, if you Which wish. is why it's called the Gulf, right? That's right. That's right. We, we try well, not to get involved in those, in, in those debates. Yeah. Um, but right, every one of these tiny countries is imperiled. And so they need the American presence. They need Western militaries essentially as an insurance policy, which means that we have more leverage than I think we realize, but don't really want to use. All right. Uh, Declan, you wrote an excellent piece for the Globe and Mail, very good newspaper. I sometimes get managed to read it. And the title was, I love soccer, but I won't be watching the World Cup. Um, talk about the, some of the reasons you decided uh, that, that that this World Cup was was not to be enjoyed by you. But I'll happily do that, but I do want to return to Jonathan's point. Sure. Because I think we're actually understating <laughs> the power and the role of Qatar. I mean, this is Checkpoint Charlie circa 2022. This is mm-hmm. really the, the, the intersection of international politics. Really, this is about uh, July 31st, 1989 and August 1989, when Saddam Hussein thought that he received permission to go in and invade another of these small Gulf states called Kuwait. And the Kuwaitis then had a problem. No one cared. <laughs> no American, no Westerner was going to lose their life to go around the world and rescue this tiny state from having been invaded by a regional superpower like Iraq. And so they had to spend tens of millions of dollars in this frantic media campaign inside Washington and other world capitals to get other people's armies to go around the world and, quote, liberate Kuwait. So these regional Gulf sheikhs, rulers, kings, whoever they are, looked at that issue and they're like, you know what? We're never going to have that happen to us. We're never going to be able to spend as much money on military tanks and planes to delay the Saudi Arabian Air Force or the Iranian Air Army or the Iraqi whatever. And these are the three big regional superpowers. So we got to find some other way of protecting ourselves. And Qatar uh, is brilliant at it. Let's not understate how smart these guys are. I think there's there's an issue, um, call it what you will, But people tend to understate the power, the influence, and the brilliance of their strategic thinking. They set up in the mid-90s the first uh, Arabic-language news broadcaster, now called Al Jazeera, spread around the world. It has a massive thing. Of course, we're all nodding because we know the power of that. But when they did it 25 years ago, it was a brilliant coup. In the early 2000s, one of their innumerable crown princes announces that he loves sports. And so they move into sports in a big way. Cannot 
overstate the power of international soccer. In uh, June 2017, Donald Trump goes to Saudi Arabia and has some kind of conversation with the leader of Saudi. A couple of weeks later, the Saudis, for whatever reason, launch a blockade of this tiny enclave country, Qatar, right on their border. They surround it, they put their planes in the air, and they, they circle it. Ten days later, the Qataris, who now own one of the richest soccer teams in the world, a team called Paris Saint-Germain, which is the French establishment soccer team. If you're a government minister, if you're a politician, if you're anywhere in that hugely centralized French political establishment, you like PSG, Paris Saint-Germain. They buy the most expensive soccer player in the world, a Brazilian guy from a team called Barcelona called Neymar. And they spend 220 million euro and they bring him in and all the sports journalists go, oh, la, la, you know, oh, my gosh, what is this? Now we're going to be champions of Europe. Blah, blah, blah. A couple of weeks later, French President Macron is on a plane to Riyadh negotiating with the Saudis to lift the blockade of Qatar. And you think a soccer player is expensive, but heck, you compare that to, say, buying one French Mirage fighter jet. You couldn't buy half a wing for the price that they paid for that soccer player. So the influence of international soccer on geopolitics is powerful. Right now, and remember where they were five years ago, right now, Qatar is actually being guarded by NATO. They've got Pakistani troops coming in, as well as NATO troops that are guarding Qatar. The British intelligence was announcing that they're going to be sharing information with the Qataris in terms of intelligence, in terms of security risk, in terms of stuff. So Qatar has really launched themselves on the geopolitical stage by this coup, by this World Cup. And their local rivals, Saudi Arabia and Egypt, and I know we're going to get in a little bit to the Israeli-Qatari relationships, but the Egyptians, they hate the Qataris. I mean, they really hate these guys. But even those guys, even the Saudis and the Egyptians who hate these guys, are looking up and seeing the, quote, success of this World Cup of soccer. And they're like, we've gone, we, we're going to get us a piece of this action. We need to do what these guys are doing. So to restate, this is Checkpoint Charlie 2022. This is a mass center of all kinds of conflicting geopolitical agendas. And these guys are not stupid. And by the way, they... They kind of bet on all the horses. I mean, that, by to have a U.S. base, but also to, to let Hamas be there. Yes. To also have the uh, they had to, to have the, uh, the the leading ideologue of uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood broadcasting yes. from there for years. He just got died. Uh, Karadari, you can tell us about him, John. Um, to also Al Jazeera, which is yes, people would say it's a news medium. I'd say it's a news and propaganda medium. They're 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 very clever about how they how they utilize that to send messages that are that they want. They are friendlier with Iran than the UAE is, or than Bahrain is, or they certainly than the Saudis are. Um, I mean, they constantly hedge their bets, and they have plenty of money to to use for betting. Go ahead, John. I can, I can tell you have something to say on that. Oh, I mean, I think that's a hundred percent right. And by by the way, I mean, I would just note that some of these rivalries that that um, that Declan was talking about, I mean, they they go back quite a ways. I mean, you know, you have the creation of Al Jazeera, which was essentially designed to be a propaganda tool to get under the skin of the Saudis. I mean, it was really the only purpose for it in the beginning. Today, it's talked about as a legitimate outlet or a, 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 an outlet for free speech in the Muslim world, and it may be more free than other outlets. But you have to remember what the initial use was for this, which was really, it was designed to needle the Saudis at every opportunity. And by the way, it's worth noting that Al Jazeera never talks about Qatari politics. It never does research into Qatar itself. Now, some of the, the, more, the more recent iterations of um, these rivalries actually stem from the Arab Spring. You recall these uh, uprisings and riots that uh, broke out in 2011. The Qataris were actually behind the support to the Muslim Brotherhood movements in places like Egypt and in Syria and in Libya. And the Emiratis, the Saudis, the Egyptians wanted nothing to do with that. They were trying to counter it. And things 
ultimately uh, reached a boiling point in 2017, which led to that blockade that Declan mentioned. But the the uh, the Qataris had had angered their Arab neighbors for so long and in so many ways that it finally reached that boiling point in 2017. I'm going to interject this little bit of story that I think both of you will find interesting, and that I was some time ago talking to a reporter from Al Arabiya which is sort of the, the Saudi international media uh, outlet. And we were talking very casually and pretty openly. And I said, you know, how is it for um, working for Al Arabiya? How's, do you have, are you reasonably free and independent as a journalist? He said, oh, yeah, I mean, not, it's better than where I used to work. I said, where was that? He said, Al Jazeera. I said, oh, that's interesting. No, okay. So, you know. All right. So they, so uh, soccer is usually powerful. Uh, and in owning soccer teams and having a, a World Cup gives you enormous amount of clout. Um, but you decided not to watch this one, Declan. And I assume it has something to do with how the Qataris won the privilege of hosting this World Cup. Why don't you start there? Look, it's it's, it's based on a number of issues. Um, the headline, and as you guys and many of our listeners will know, um, you write the pieces, you suggest the headline, and the editors <laughs> will do whatever they want. What I, I, I file the pieces uh, with the headline, Silence, the Sound of Modern-Day Slavery. And um, I, I, I look at the really substantiated, credible research on the human toll that it's cost to build the world's largest sporting tournament. It's, it's a human toll which is comparable with an ancient Egyptian pharaoh building a pyramid. Hmm. Thousands of people have died to put this in place. And it's extraordinary. You know, you feel like checking your watch or your time on your mobile phone. We're living in the year 2022, and thousands of effective slaves and dentured labor died to put this on. It's truly extraordinary. They talk about stadiums of blood and bones. Um, Indentured laborers from Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan, Ghana, Kenya, uh, literally around the world, Philippines, came to Qatar uh, having paid uh, fees, which are very close to human trafficking, to get there under uh, an age-old system that Jonathan can speak to called the Kafala system. Their passports were taken away. They were unable to change jobs, and they were worked around the clock in searing boiling heat, 12, 16 hours a day, living in primitive conditions without air conditioning and working without breaks. And to build to, to build what, the infrastructure, the stadium? To build the infrastructure of the World Cup. Right. Uh, that's the subway lines. That's the hotels. That's the road. That's all the construction. Let, let me give you um, one story. In 2016, the Qatari government, for whatever reason, presumably some crown prince liked the idea, decided to host a marathon. And being Qatari, they weren't going to host just a regular community marathon. They decided in their first initiation, they're going to host the world's biggest. Well, unfortunately, nobody else wanted to run in a marathon in Doha. So they <laughs> forced tens of thousands of these poor guys who are indentured laborers to run in their marathon. And so, again, listeners, if you want, just check online. You can see on YouTube these poor guys who, you know, were out of shape. They're running in flip-flops. They start at 6 in the morning, and by the time they get to mile 15 or 20, it's now 10, 11 o'clock, and it's boiling, boiling hot, well above 100 degrees, and they're toppling over, they're falling over. It's just that sheer inhumanity of it. And, and, and for me, um, the blood of specifically making us the sporting infrastructure with what all kinds of credible human rights organizations have said are modern-day slavery. It's just too much. You know, it's interesting, Declan, the, the numbers that you cite, there there have been recent reports coming out of Qatar, coming out of uh, FIFA, uh, where they admit four to 500 people uh, died uh, yes. in the construction of these stadiums and the other infrastructure, which is, of course, incredibly low. I think there's a certain amount of damage control that's going on here right now, um, but I don't think they can really hide what's going on. It's damage control, Jonathan, on an exponential weirdly level. Like they spent decades saying, oh, only one or two people died. And suddenly in the midst of the tournament, they're like, oh, actually, it could be 500. Well, most most sporting tournaments who said, well, actually, it was 500 people who died to make the sporting tournament, that would be a major black eye and fiasco. 
but such as the true scale of the human rights atrocity of constructing this sporting tournament, where you know we're thinking in the thousands, north of six thousand people, right. only five, four to five hundred people is considered well. Fair enough. That's jolly good. Like, how many mining disasters in West Virginia would would take five hundred people? Like, if you had a coal industry in West Virginia that was killing five hundred people to produce that much coal, you're like, hey guys, let's just shut down the entire industry until we get it right. This is to make one sporting tournament. Mm-hmm. And we haven't even gotten to how this um, came about in the first place. Right. Which I I think, right. I mean, the the way in which Qatar was able to purchase the World Cup, really, I think we need to stress that here. There's a there's a book um, called The Ugly Game. Um, The subhead is uh, the Qatari the Qatari plot to buy the World Cup. It is by Heidi Blake and Jonathan Calvert. They uh, they they worked. They wrote uh, uh, the book while uh, working for The Sunday Times in the UK. Um, they detail really in, in, in incredible detail, um, the way in which Qatar was somehow able to convince FIFA officials through at least the way they writ, they wrote it through money, uh, and through other favors, um, by way of one official, a guy by the name of Mohammed bin Hammam is the, the one that they identify. Um, but essentially Qatar bought the world cup. It, they bought it against all odds. And in fact, um, after Qatar won the World Cup, um, they realized that they had to move the timing of it because they couldn't host it in the summer because of the boiling heat. So they moved it. This is the first one, Declan, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the first World Cup to be held in November uh, because they simply couldn't do it in the time that the World Cup would normally be held. So everything about this World Cup has just been downright bizarre. And for 12 years since they won the bid, People have been rather quiet about it. Now, as the World Cup was about to get underway, and now that it is underway, we're starting to see more reporting, specifically out of Europe, about all of the problems in terms of the acquisition of the game, the way that the stadiums were built, the human rights violations, the terror finance, and everything else. It's finally coming to light, but it's amazing that it took this long for the West to wake up to what had happened. You know, let me just provide a, a very brief summary of how Qatar got this World Cup. And it's not by me. It's by a, a, a very able Wall Street Journal contributor who I know a little bit, Tanku Varadarajan. He said he wrote recently, Qatar was, quote, rich enough to purchase the hosting rights from FIFA, World Soccer's governing body. FIFA has famously lax morals. FIFA's bidding process was opaque and corrupt, and he and a number of other journalists have gone on to put forth allegations, rather credible, of bribes and payouts made by Qatar to get what they wanted, uh, which was to, to, to be able to host this. Now, I mean, a little sordid history, and Tunku provides that as too. He says, Qatar's emir isn't the first autocrat to host the cup. He points out that the 1934 World Cup was held in fascist Italy. And of course, the 1936 Olympics in Nazi Germany. Then you had the Winter Olympics in 2014 and the World Cup in 2018 in Putin's Russia. So, Declan, you you may be right that sports has uh, the potential to unite us and be a, a, a an event that brings a greater freedom to the world. But but it doesn't the history is is mixed at best. Well, hang on. There's the two points to that. First of all, even in Putin's Russia, even in the recent places, I do in no way do I want to contrast 1936 in Hitler's. Uh, let's not even go there. But recently, well, people didn't know in 36 what, what you know how how bad this was going to get. That was still reasonably premature. Look at uh, the American ambassador. Thousands of people have died to put on this sporting tournament. Yeah, That's, yeah. That for me is the limit. That's right. the direct line that it crosses over, where you're turning on to television, and Jonathan's point is an excellent one. Much of the criticism, much of the silence has been mooted and muted because the TV broadcasters just don't want to discuss this. A TV sporting event like the Mm -hmm. Olympics or like the World Cup is one of the last pot of golds for broadcasters. Mm -hmm. The internet, um, with streaming services, much of their previous revenue streams have been destroyed. The last thing they want to discuss is the potential for modern-day slavery in this mass event that's going on. 
Second thing that I want to bring in, and again, to listeners, it must just seem weird, but I want to state that both what you said and what Jonathan's saying is actually an understatement. Like, like it's weird. It, it's bizarre, the level that this is being taken to. So Jonathan had a brilliant summary of all the allegations of corruption around um, the acquisition of the World Cup. But the scale, it, it, it's like... It's like the triple home run of payments. So just one of the things that was uncovered was that the Qataris made a deal with the Thai representative in FIFA to provide them with a multi-billion dollar natural gas terminal in uh, Thailand. So we're not talking about envelopes of cash and tens of mm. thousands of this or that. We're talking about multi-billion dollar deals they were actually brokered. That particular uh, was brokered by a former contact of mine uh, who was head of the Chinese illegal gambling market inside much of Southeast Asia. So they used him as their broker to go back and forth. Um, uh, he subsequently died, but he was one of my, my best contacts in the match-fixing uh, world. Eventually, the American investigators in probably the most successful foreign policy coup that the Americans have done since the Marshall Plan investigate FIFA. It was almost ignored around the, across America, but the rest of the world paid attention, and it was a great moment to be an American. And in 2017, after the American FBI Department of Justice had uh, arrested dozens of top FIFA officials, there's a court trial in the Southern District of New York. And as you guys know, the Southern District of New York is famous for their trials of organized crime, the big five families of New York mobster history and lore, the Russian mafia, the Chinese triads. And in comes this trial in and around FIFA. And the prosecutors say, this trial of FIFA executives is so dangerous, we want the jury sequestered. And two, we want to host this under the RICO statues, the racketeering statues of the organized crime. And so, extraordinarily, the judge of the Southern District Court of New York reviews the evidence and says, you know what? You're right. FIFA is an organized crime group. Mm. Even more extraordinary, the defense lawyers say, you know what? You're absolutely right. FIFA is a racketeering organized crime group. It's just that our clients happen to be innocent. But that whole world is dipped, you know, like swimming in corruption and organized crime. And FIFA is an organized crime grouping. So at the heart of this world's biggest sporting tournament, which is on right now, is you have a bizarre marriage between a place and this organized crime soccer family. And the human toll has been thousands of workers in putting it on. So for me, a believer in the virtues and values and morals of sport, I'm like, no, thank you. I love soccer. I risked my life for soccer. But this one, this is a bridge too far for me. And you, you know, you're willing as a journalist to, 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 to talk about this stuff, certainly at least, uh, you know, here on a podcast and in the Globe and Mail. Um, but And you mentioned that, that a lot of journalists are not. But I want to make clear, it's not just that the, the journalists in Doha, most of them anyhow, you'll help me on this, think, well, you know, I'm, I got to concentrate on the games, not all these other controversies, not on the uh, on how this was built or I don't do that. Just to, but you, you, if I remember correctly, your your piece in the Global Mail says that the international broadcasters had to actually sign contracts with the Qatari government and essentially say that, oh, don't you worry, we're not going to report on anything you don't want us to report on. <laughs> Have I got that right? The control of international media, um, you know, like it does it does credit to the communist Chinese. And frankly, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not a fan of the communist Chinese in any way. But the Qatari government has said to these major international broadcasters, you have three places where you can film and everything else is illegal. And the BBC um, has direct experience of this, you know, arguably the world's biggest international broadcaster. They had their correspondent arrested when he tried. He was invited, the BBC team was invited in 2015 to do a tour of Qatar to show the conditions of the uh, of the workers. And they said, well, you know, you're going to clean up that place before we get there. We're, we're going to come a day early and we're going to inspect, you know, another place. They're on their way to inspect this other place, you know, this this habitation of the, of the workers where all kinds of, you know, modern day slavery, indentured labor. And they're driven off the road. You know, eight security vans drive the BBC team off the road, grab them, arrest them, bring them, detain them in a jail 
for over 12 hours. And in the midst of this thing says, what do you think this is? Disneyland? You don't get to point wow. your camera. You know, we own this place. Um, we haven't spoken either about the incredible maltreatment of our brothers and sisters in the sexual minority community or about women's rights. There's all kinds of other issues. Well, I, I want to get to as many of them as we can. I was going to start, though, with with Iran, because, and the reason is because, on the one hand, you're saying that the Qataris say, hey, this is not Disneyland, this is our country, you're going to do what we tell you to do while you're here. The Iranians apparently said to the Qataris, we're going to send some of our security people to make sure that everything that our people do is uh, is kosher. You should excuse the expression. Uh, I don't think it, it didn't work out as well as they had hopes. At least as we're broadcast, as we're recording this on on on, on Tuesday the 29th, Iran's players refused to sing their national anthem in the opening game, and then that was in solidarity with the protesters. In dozens of cities back home, we saw fans, I think, in the in the stands booing the national anthem, which was adopted by the Iranian, by the Islamic Republic of Iran in 1990. And the Iranian TV cut away from the players' faces. Um, some were singing pre-revolutionary uh, songs instead. There were Iranians chanting death to Khamenei, the, uh, the, the supreme leader. Um, and by the way, the, the captain of the Iranian team said that the players support and sympathize with families grieving for loved ones killed by state crowd, uh, state crackdowns against the, the the demonstrations that are in favor of some freedom and life and women's rights and and all of that. So let me just let's just talk about Iran and its role for just a couple of minutes uh, here, Jonathan. Maybe you start. Yeah, I mean, look, I think you summed up exactly what's going on. Um, you have to remember that the Qataris and the Iranians, they share um, energy wealth uh, in the Gulf, um, whichever Gulf you want to describe it as. Um, but uh, they have this uneasy relationship. And in fact, when you look at the um, decision by the Saudis and the Emiratis and others to place a blockade uh, around Qatar back in 2017, uh, they actually cited Qatar's uh, relationship with Iran as one of their grievances. Um, and so it's not surprising that the Qataris have allowed the Iranians to operate as they wish. I don't think that it's done um, half of what they they wanted it to do. But um, but you can get a sense that this is, you know, this, this is not a liberal place, right? Um, the fact that they're willing to allow foreign intelligence onto their soil to patrol for sentiment being voiced by fans. This is, I would think, it would run counter to the very ethos of what FIFA is trying to hold. But by the way, this is just part of it, right? I mean, you know, I think it's worth maybe sketching out a couple of other things that we've seen, just very odd things happening during this World Cup. Um, for example, Israelis are allowed to go. And there are, it appears anyway, that there are organized groups that are um, trying to basically swarm journalists um, and 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 to treat them poorly while they're on the air to send a message about the way that uh, Israel deals with its Palestinian issues and the like. Um, one, you know, it, it's been actually rather jarring for Israelis as they've seen the way that their journalists and their fans have been treated there. Got to remember, this is Qatar. These are the sponsors of Hamas. So they're, they're certainly not trying to stop this from happening while giving the, you know, Iranian agents run of the place, right? So you get a sense there are certain things that they want to stop, certain things they're going to allow. It's a bit off. The other thing that I'll just note is the strange phenomenon that has now been reported by a range of legitimate uh, outlets in the West, and that is that um, Qatar has bought fans, um, that they have inserted thousands of fans into the stands uh, to either uh, cheer for the Qatari national team or to just fill the stands in general, similar to what Declan was talking about with the marathon, but on a much grander scale, right? So you've got these hundreds of thousands of foreign workers that it looks like right now they're stuffing into the stands because people didn't want to come to the games in the first place. So the whole thing has been bizarre from start to finish. And again, the criticism has just been trickling out, um, but I don't think nearly to the scale that it should be. So, Declan, I want you to, to 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 talk about what you you mentioned that you wanted to talk about, which is women's rights and LGBTQ rights. Um, but I want to introduce it this way because I also want to get the get this name in, into it, and that is um, 
what's the Mr. In, uh, Infantino? He's the head of FIFA there. Is that is that the right name? But what's his uh, first? Jenny Infantino was the president of FIFA. Right. And um, he took over just after the Seb Blatter, after the Americans had done their major investigation. And is this, are you going to talk about that bizarre rambling speech that was like something <laughs> like well, in the Palace of Versailles? Yes, exactly what I had in mind. Because Douglas Murray, who is a very engaging writer, who you, you I don't know, you guys mm-hmm. probably know him. So he wrote a little about this in The, in the Spectator. He wrote, uh, and he said, in a rambling monologue with leaden pauses, and Mr. Intifado told 400 journalists, today, I feel very strong feelings. Today, I feel like a Qatari. Today, I feel like an Arab. Today, I feel like an African. Today, I feel gay. Today, I feel disabled. Today, I feel like a migrant worker. He left out whether or not he felt like a woman. And somebody, when somebody asked why, he immediately confirmed that he did indeed also feel like a woman. Is he Shania Twain? I mean, like, you know, why is this? I mean, this is... Six foot four white guy who's the CEO of one of the most powerful corporations in the world. He's been living in Doha for months now. He knows the allegations. You know, as Jonathan said, they've now said, oh, only four or 500 people died to put on this sporting event. Credible human rights organizations and newspapers are saying it's north of 6,000. And here is this buffoon on the world stage saying, I feel like a migrant worker. Really? Are you going to work for a dollar a day in the hot sun? Because, you know, that's that's really what you got to have to do if you're going to feel like that. And I won't read everything that, that Doug said, but it, his next line was very funny. He said, the speech induced strong feelings in turn. When he got to the bit about feeling gay, I suddenly had an overwhelming desire for someone to put him to the test right there on stage. And Douglas then says, Mr. Infantino is not my type, for though I do not wish to play the man and not the ball, he too closely resembles the brother chain to the wall in the Goonies to quite do it for me. <laughs> it's pretty funny. But we should, to be more serious, homosexuality is illegal in Qatar. Actually illegal. You don't have an early And punishable, is it not? Yeah. And, and look, um, Human Rights Watch came out with a report in uh, September detailing an appalling treatment of um, sexual minorities there, speaking about dungeons, speaking about beatings, speaking about humiliations. And I think for those um, of us who are not, you know, in that community or, you know, don't share what our brothers and sisters share, I, I think it's really clear they are the canaries of the world at the moment. If bad stuff is going to happen to them, it's going to happen to the rest of society on on a spectrum. It's first that they're put in the dungeons. It's first that they are, are beaten and humiliated. Let, let me give you an example. Um, there was a Dutch tourist, uh, mm. a, a woman who was arrested for rape in Doha. She wasn't raping somebody. She had been arrested. She had been sexually assaulted. Somebody had date raped her, dropped a pill in her drink, and she'd woken up after being sexually assaulted. So the first thing she does is goes to the police station. And the first thing that the Qatari police do is arrest her. And they detain her for three months for reporting her own sexual assault. If it were just that story, it would be a tragedy. But the United Nations has done serious, long-term, systemic investigations and research into the thousands of similar cases in Qatar. It's an appalling situation there. It's an appalling human rights situation. And it really needed to be addressed in a serious, credible way by Gianni Infantino, the president of FIFA, who's hosting this world sporting tournament there now. And unfortunately, it turned into a clown show. Mm. In fact, to be fair, Infantino claimed he he understood what it's like to be discriminated against because as a child, he was bullied for having red hair and, and freckles. So that's it. <laughs> 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 I'm, not, I'm not making this stuff up. Yeah. But it's been ridiculous. But but by the way, I mean, I, I think it's also important to note that, um, you know, the, the example that you cited about this one sexual assault and, and the bizarre um, kind of law enforcement response, um, there have been some other things that have been a bit strange that have been associated with this World Cup. For example, there's a, a, a Brit um, this is reported by the BBC, who had been uh, working to help develop the Qatari tourism industry. At some point a few years ago, I guess it was two years ago, he was wooed away uh, to Saudi Arabia. He accepted the job. 
he came back to tie up a few loose ends in Qatar and uh, and then they never found him again. Um, his parents were notified of his death um, and that he had apparently been tortured. Um, I mean, these are the sorts of things that have crept into this World Cup, and it's been nothing short of jarring to watch. Um, and yet, uh, the Qataris have paid zero price for all of this, right? The games have gone on. Um, and that's really one of the more bizarre things about this is you could just when you begin to add up, think about it. We've been speaking for nearly an hour now, and there's just this litany of crimes from the past as well as from, you know, just with, with over the last few years associated with the World Cup and and yet relative silence from the media. Shocking, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. Prince Charles, now King Charles III, uh, has a charity and the um, leader of Qatar made a donation of over a million uh, British pounds. And he made it twice by showing up for a personal meeting with Prince Charles with the money in a shopping bag. <laughs> and Jonathan, I don't mean like the envelope with the check or the money order. I mean, the guy brings cash to meet another royalty and says, oh yeah, here, my aides will give you the cash. I mean, this is that kind of exponential like hitspot that these guys have on this stage and on this influence game. Was it at least a Harrods shopping bag? So I think it might. Have, I think might it have been. might have been. <laughs> wow. Um, either of Israelis attended the, the, the this World Cup, including Israeli journals, even though the two countries don't have relations. So, how were the Israelis who are sports fans or journalists treated? Jonathan, you want to start? Yeah, I mean, look, not particularly well. Um, you know, as I said, the the journalists, um, you know, it's actually interesting. I mean, I've seen a couple of different um, clips uh, from the Israeli news. There was one where it was actually really actually fun to watch where you've got an Israeli journalist reporting, I think, on on a, a match that Iran had either tied or won. And uh, he was surrounded by royalists, you know, supporters of the former Shah. Um, and, uh, you know, they're all surrounding him and giving him hugs and putting sunglasses on him and waving, uh, the Royal flag. And, uh, you know, it was, it was really kind of a, a joy to watch, right? So there's the one side of it. Then the other is where, you know, you've, these journalists are getting booed, uh, and people who are waving Palestinian flags and, and jeering them. Um, in general, uh, the reports from Israelis that are there, is that it's been fun to watch the games, but they're not particularly loved. They see a lot of Palestinian flags in the stands. And again, I think it's just worth noting that, you know, the Iranians um, and maybe to an extent the Chinese have had the ability to censor what happens on the field um, and what happens in the stands. The Israelis get none of that. And so the, the Qataris are picking and choosing right now how they are allowing certain political things to play out. Yeah, there were a number of uh, restaurants that had signs saying we support the uh, boycott of, of Israel, so they don't welcome Israelis in their restaurant. Uh, the Qatar Youth Opposed to Normalization uh, that is a group that based in Doha, pro-Palestinian, but it protested the presence of Zionists in the Gulf state. And by the way, you know, the interesting name, Opposed to Normalization. What does normalization mean? It means beginning to have normal relations between Israelis and Palestinians, which would lead to peace and a settlement, maybe a two-state solution. But if you don't have normalization, I don't know how you don't get normalization after you had come to a peace agreement or an end to the conflict. You have to have normalization first, and they oppose that. So it's so. But you know, in terms and and I know you you know about this, Jonathan. the Qataris have uh, support the Palestinians in places like Gaza. They spend a lot of money on rebuilding. And the Israelis often say to the, are talking with the Qataris quietly saying, well, yeah, I mean, somebody needs to rebuild it after the last war that the, uh, that, the that Hamas launched against us. So if you want to do it, go ahead and do it. And we right. hope you'll, you know, you'll have an interest and they'll have an interest in not having another war where we reduce it to rubble and you'll have to rebuild it again. I mean, that those those relations do take place. Right, they do. And 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 you could even argue that there is a certain amount of normalization that's taking place there, right? I mean, that they're interacting with one another in a um, non-aggressive way. Um, I do uh, still hold that the Qataris have been 
um, the arsonists and the firefighters, they support Hamas and then they go in uh, after Hamas provokes a war with Israel and they say, well, we're going to rebuild for the sake of, you know, uh, of humanity here. Right. Um, and so they have ended up supporting both sides. Right. Cleaning things up and then provoking yet again. And it's really remarkable. The Israelis put up with it because there's no one else um, who will foot the bill for this. And it gives cuts to the Qataris like it because it gives them a seat at the table. But, you know, for, for Qataris to say that they're anti-normalization when they're now allowing flights from Tel Aviv to Doha for the games is is also some chutzpah here, right? It's right. it's a bit funny. They've done to a certain extent what the Emiratis and the Bahrainis and others have started to do as well. So they've joined it, albeit reluctantly, and they're using this as an opportunity, a soapbox, if you will, um, you know, to to lash out at the Israelis when expedient. You know, there's one other quote I wanted to give you about the Israeli treatment there, and it's from Amjad Taha, who is based in Bahrain. He's the regional director of the British Middle East Center for Studies and Research. He's the author of The Deception of the Arab Spring, and he tweeted, they say that Israel does not exist, meaning Qataris, and still the only thing they can think about and talk about in the World Cup is Israel. The world should know that Qatar represents the extremists in the place where radicals live and not the voice of peace in the Arab world. The way Palestinian street journalists teach us a lot about their Pollywood, Pollywood being film propaganda that, that's meant to show things that didn't necessarily uh, occur. You know, as we, as we as we come towards a close, there, I have, there are two questions I want to ask. First is, we're talking about this. We've, told, we've quoted a number of journalists and others who are talking about this. Does this suggest to you at all, Declan, that there that the effort to host the World Cup and be in the world spotlight that there and improve their image has not entirely succeeded? How do you, or is it too soon to judge that? I think so. It's an enormous missed opportunity. And I want to stress to all our listeners, um, I think it was time for an Islamic country to host the World Cup. Uh, there's been much publicity because at the last minute they rescinded a deal with Budweiser to be able to sell alcohol in the stadiums. And all kinds of people protested, oh, I want to be able to drink beer and blah, blah, blah on the streets. I'm like, you know what? You know what? If it's, if it's a World Cup, if it's genuinely to be shared around the world, why not have it in an Islamic country? Why not say, hey, you know what? We can have a beer in the hotel. We can't have it here. I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is the Qataris rescinding the you know, negotiated contract two days before the, the World Cup saying, hey, you know, the paper isn't worth, isn't worth what mm. we signed here. Um, and I think that is symbolic of the way Qatar has handled this. They could have paid these 6,000 workers, fair wages, the people who died, they could have, you know, reimbursed and made good with their families and their widows and their children. And instead, they, they've consistently not done this. They've kind of delivered one of the worst self-inflicted black eyes in the history of boxing to themselves or international boxing to themselves. They've consistently thumped themselves in the eye. And Jonathan's uh, point about protest. I actually don't have a problem with people waving Palestinian flags in, in the stadium, so long as you're allowed to wave other flags. You know, it should be a human rights encouraged uh, issue. And I'm sure that, you know, even as we're speaking, there are Israelis and Iranians quietly having a cup of tea or a beer or a coffee and playing backgammon. I've seen that on the streets of Gaza. Though so probably not waving Israeli flags in the stands, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, you know, so long as people are allowed to express themselves, crack on, do this. And I think has really screwed this one up, really, really screwed this one up. So this gets to my final question. Um, and I want to give credit again to Tanku Varadarajan, who raised this. You know, he said China is going to bid for the World Cup in, in the future. China had the Olympics. We now have a situation where we where the U.S. and the U.K., call the persecution of the Uyghurs, uh, Turkic Muslim people, genocide. Um, we have Tibet uh, under occupation and and being colonized. Tunku says, you know, there a way needs to be found to exclude unsavory regimes from hosting the World Cup. There should be a demand that no World Cup ever be hosted in a country, he says, that isn't a democracy. And one could uh, go lighter than that and say, or at least one that is not involved in 
egregious violations of basic freedoms and human rights. I mean, maybe it's too much to say it's got to be a democracy. I think I might quibble with Tonko on this one. But but certainly, I mean, certainly Russia, China, Venezuela, you you don't want these international events in countries like that. There should be a way to prevent them. There's a very simple way of doing this because you're talking about just the human rights violations. In my job, I see consistent chronic systemic fraud. I mean, yeah. uh, I just had a, um, an interview um, for a podcast that I host with the Brazilian prosecutor who investigated the World Cup stadiums in Brazil. There's one stadium they would have to run it daily for 3,000 years before they make a profit. And, mm. and no, Jonathan, you know, I, that wasn't an, it wasn't a misstatement in my voice. 3,000 years. That's how, ex, you know, massive, exponential the fraud is. So, look, there's a very, very simple way of doing this. Every Winter Olympics is held in Switzerland. Every Summer Olympics is held in Greece. And every Soccer World Cup is held in Brazil. They've won the, they won the right to do this. You just put it consistently in one place and it gets rid of a lot of the building construction, the infrastructure option, the bribes, and you just get used to it. Instead of this ridiculous parade of international corruption that accomplishes these sports tournaments. I agree with you in part. Um, but you know, you have to understand that when I, mean, I lived in Atlanta and in, in the early nineties, and, um, you know, the, the community there saw it as a huge opportunity to build infrastructure, to upgrade. Um, they won the bid fair and square, or at least that was my understanding. Um, and, and they looked forward to the upgrades that they were going to pay for in order to host the Olympics. I, I don't see a problem with uh, countries being able to bid. Uh, and then host the, uh, the sporting events in question. As long as it's done in a transparent way. Um, I think the problem here is twofold. I mean, it's FIFA and it's Qatar. And I don't think either one of them have been held to account. Mm. And that's, that's really, I think that, you know, if they're, look, the FBI did look into the corruption in FIFA, but I don't know if we ever saw anything come of it in any material way, right? I think that. If we truly held to account, you know, the, the 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 country of Qatar and FIFA itself for what happened here, all of the things that happened here, the deaths, the corruption, the mistreatment of, you know, thousands of people, this, I think, would be a start, a move in the right direction. The problem, I think, right now is that we just don't see it. I mean, the, the way that the American broadcasters, no less, right? I was watching this uh, the other day on Fox. They just don't talk about any of the controversy whatsoever, right? The BBC will touch on it. They'll start with the human rights issues and then quickly move to the sport itself. And everybody's just sort of shrugged and moved on. This cannot happen if we want to prevent this kind of thing from happening again. Agreed. Absolutely. Expand on that, Declan. I mean, is there any way to, to put FIFA on the straight and narrow to clean it up. It's not going to clean itself up, but I don't know what international, you know, law enforcement mechanism you have to turn it into an, an honest woman. Um, this is my, um, I'll skip the honest woman uh, <laughs> to, to, to leave it to one side, brother. Um, but look, I feel like, you know, there's a really easy way of handling this. And that's just to, you know, everyone who's listening, who is truly disgusted is just right to Adidas. Adidas, FIFA, and the International Olympic Committee really are the houses that Adidas built. Mm. And again, as my, my university students know, because I dump this into their heads constantly, Adidas CEO back in the 1970s and early 80s was a brilliant guy, absolutely brilliant. And he was decided, I've had enough of these big sporting organizations making decisions that affect my company. I'm going to come into those corporations and I'm going to get them. So in 2010, um, his protégés, these young executives that he trained and brought in, one was Thomas Bach, who was president of the International Olympic Committee, still is, and the other one was a guy called Sepp Blatter, who was president of FIFA. And they were both direct protégés of Adidas. When you go to their um, headquarters, as I have in Lausanne and Zurich, it's it's the houses that, FIFA, uh, that Adidas built. So reach out to the sponsors, be it Budweiser, be it Adidas, and just say, hey, you know what, thanks very much for your services, for your, your whatever. I'm just not going to support you for the next month, two months, three months, six months, whatever. And you'll find those sponsors will crack those guys very, very quickly. 
But Budweiser seems like the obvious one, right? I mean, Budweiser just got screwed. Yep. They should be talking about this right now. Um, they have nothing to lose here um, at this point. Uh, you'd think that maybe you would. I mean, the irony of uh, of uh, of a of a beer company coming out, um, you know, against some of this behavior. But I I think it's it, it would be well earned. Well, and the problem is that look, guys, Budweiser, you were warned for months, weeks, years that there was going to be an issue, and at the last moment, they screw you over. Thank you so much, Declan Hill, for the interesting analysis and, and incisive observations. Really pleased to get have this conversation with you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks to all of you for being with us for this conversation right here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.